Welcome back to the Practice Purchase Podcast. We are on season six and talking all about transition issues for the buyer. When the buyer knows they're going to buy a practice, but they haven't yet closed, what are the types of things you, as a future practice owner, need to start thinking about, worrying about, maybe paying for, not doing, not worrying about? And right after money, after the numbers work and the buyer has decided, yeah, you know what, I think I can afford this practice. The numbers look good. I'm excited. The number two thing, you know, after money that uh, buyers worry about are the people in the office, staffing, HR issues, things related to the staff. I get a lot of questions, a lot of questions from buyers around, you know, when can I meet the staff? What do I need to have in place? Employee handbooks, HIPAA manuals. What if I want to fire somebody? There are all kinds of issues that come up around the, the generalized topic of, a, I'm going to lump it into uh, quote unquote HR or human resources. And um, today I'm interviewing Kara Kelly, the owner of Clinical HR. And part one of this discussion, part one of two, is going to be all about the, the issues to worry about before you buy the practice. What do you need to worry about? What do you not need to worry about? And Kara is an expert here. She is certified uh, by multiple HR agencies and uh, she knows what she's talking about. She's helped uh, dental practice owners all over the country. Uh, many of whom have either started or bought practices, uh, deal with the issues you're going to be thinking about. So as we dive into issues around people, uh, listen carefully to some of the advice Kara gives. In particular, I loved her advice around um, thinking through the right time to meet the staff and what you say to that staff when you meet them for the first time. Uh, so with that, Kara Kelly, Clinical HR, and uh, enjoy the, the episode. Kara Kelly, welcome to Practice Purchase. Thank you for being here. How long have you worked with and worked um, at Clinical HR, your company, the business you run? So I started Clinical HR at the end of 2019. Okay. So this is my fourth year I'm working on. Yeah. And you and I have a similar background. You and I both worked as junior accountant, financial advisor, people at a big um, <laughs> dental CPA in Dallas. And I went the transitions route. I was not an accountant. No, we don't make that mistake. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I worked at a dental CPA firm for Fair almost enough. eight years. Yes. And so I have a very broad business background when it comes to dentistry, but no, I do not ever want to be mistaken for an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Nobody wants to be mixed up with us accountant types. I am not offended and that makes perfect sense. Uh, but you went clinical HR route. I went practice transition. So it's, it's fun to kind of meet back here on a podcast and talk through. I love that we have a similar background and, and do things uh, that kind of parallel with each other. Exactly. Okay. So our, our our clients are brand new practice owners. They're either thinking about or about to, or have just purchased a practice. You deal with what is the number one source of stress for this group of people. Well, I don't know. I'm trying to decide what is a bigger stress, money or people. I would say they're obviously related. Um, but after the numbers work and they know they're going to buy a practice and the bank has told them to lend them money, the next thing they worry the most about is staffing issues, employee manuals, HR and compliance and payroll and HIPAA and this and that and the other. So um, let's get into <laughs> where um, people should be worried and maybe where they shouldn't be worried. So um, let me just hit you with the very first question I get. Uh, and this may not be the biggest issue, and that's okay. But the very first question I get is, Brian, when can I meet the staff? And what should I talk to them about when I, I, I don't even, I've never worked in this practice before. So Carrie, you're, you're an HR expert. You've seen this and done this a lot more times than I have. What would be your answer to that question? 
as soon as possible is my answer. And I know that goes against all conventional wisdom. And I know that goes against what sellers like to hear um, because you know I, I understand that deals can fall apart when the team gets spooked. But quite honestly, I've seen it happen so many times where the dentist doesn't meet the team. I've literally had calls from clients that said, I bought a practice. I closed on a practice last week and I'm going to meet the team on Monday. And I'm like, you've bought a practice and you've not met the team. Yeah. You've never. Okay, great. Um, this will be fun. <laughs> uh, sometimes it works out really well. Sometimes the seller has prepared the team. You know, hey, I'm going to be retiring in a couple of years. Hey, this is maybe on the radar at some point. Um, but so many times they haven't. They just kind of say, guys, I'm selling the practice next week. So we're going to be meeting our new associate. Uh, your new doctor, your new boss, basically. Um, and so I, I think that's very, very scary that honestly, if you were if you were any other practice owner and you said, hey, I want you to hire this person without ever meeting them. I, I want you, I don't want you to look at their resume. I don't want you to go you know, post a job posting. I don't want you to interview anybody. I just want you to have this person work for you. That's effectively what uh, buyers are doing when they buy a practice without meeting the team. Uh, and I know officially they don't have to hire them, but once they've actually taken on the team and once they put them on payroll, they've hired them. Oh my so gosh. Yeah. That's, that's how this really works whenever you don't meet the team. As soon as possible. So I'm in agreement with you. By the way, you are right. That is conventional wisdom to kind of keep it a secret from the staff. Um, I will say I'm banging the drum very loudly to change this. There are some others out in the industry who are, I was just, just a quick story. Last week, I was at a, a broke dental broker conference. I was in the invited speaker to this group of dental brokers. So I'm in a room with uh, probably 40 dental brokers all around the country. And it actually went really well. We found out we were simpatico on 95%, but this was the one issue that I really fought with them on. And, it always is. You know, they had all kinds of justifications. Well, it's, um, you know, I, I don't want to impose secrecy on my staff, right? Because we can't blast it out to the universe. And so that's just unfair of me as a seller to now tell my front desk, my hygienist, my assistants, uh, that uh, this secret, that now they have to keep a secret. And I said, bull crap, bull. Yeah, that's crap. Sorry. <laughs> guys, you brokers just want to keep control of the deal and you get paid after this, the deal closes. And, uh, you know, and sheepishly in a few of them, you know, in the break, we're like, yeah, Brian, you're right. <laughs> so, um, okay. So I know, I know where they're coming from. I honestly, I, I know there are deal, the deals that have fallen apart completely when the staff leaves, but you know, Sometimes that happens anyway. Sometimes you transition and you have hired all of these people and half of them take off within the first month because they got spooked or they know they can find a better deal somewhere else or whatever the reason is. They, they feel like you've broken their trust somehow. You're this new person. They worked for this other doctor for five, 10, sometimes 20 years. And then all of a sudden they, they got hurt. You know and that. so they decide yep. to leave. <laughs> So Kara, one of the things I, I love about you and clinical HR is there's always a business case behind the advice you're giving. And let, check, check me here, because I, I argue mm -hmm. that a dental practice where a seller isn't comfortable telling the staff is mm -hmm. actually worth less, like, you know, monetarily. Actually, the valuation should be a smaller number for a practice where a doctor doesn't even have the trust of his staff to tell that staff that he's leaving. And by the way, is dumb enough to think the staff doesn't know he's leaving, right? And so I argue that's just the tip of an iceberg of all kinds of other potential issues that uh, you know are related to trust, but have to do with training and um, procedures and policies and everything else, hiring, et cetera, et cetera. And so I argue that this is just the tip of the iceberg issue. Am I missing anything? Would you challenge that at all? 
I leave it to amazing people like you to assign a value to a practice. And so I'll defer to you on, on that side as to whether or not it should officially be worth less. But I do feel like the reason so many people don't want to tell their team, so many sellers don't want to tell their team is because they want the team to stay because the practice is worth more. And and yeah, if they leave because they feel like that trust has been broken, then the practice is not worth what it was when you paid for it. Um, and, and that's a scary thing. Does the first conversation a buyer has with the staff change based on when they're having that conversation, right? If, if the buyer is able to meet with that staff, maybe six, eight weeks before they close in the practice, does that conversation sound different than the buyer who didn't get to meet the staff and now is walking in Monday and saying, surprise, I'm your new boss? I think it can. Um, I think if they meet them a couple of weeks before or even one week before, uh, this is more of a, an introduction. A, hey, I'm not here to, to make a lot of changes. I'm here to uh, support you. I want this to work for all of us. I want to be successful. And I know that you are going to help us be successful together as a team. You can say that whenever whenever you come in on day one that you've actually owned the practice for a week and the the uh, seller is either gone or <laughs> maybe staying there, but it doesn't have quite the same effect. It doesn't land the same way, in my okay. opinion. Nice. I like it. I like it. All right. What else does a buyer need to think about HR-wise before they close? Like, let me just hit you with a few common questions. Mm -hmm. Do I need a compliance or operations manual or some kind of employee manual? Yes. And those are a couple of different manuals, okay. actually. Yeah, yeah, when perfect. you're looking at something like HIPAA compliance or OSHA compliance, those are different things. If you're looking for SOPs, that's something you get from your practice management consultant. SOP being standard operating procedure, correct? Correct. Yep. A, this is how the front desk is going to run. And you know, I know the, the general knowledge is or the general advice is to go ahead and keep it the same for three to six months or so after you've transitioned. And that may be correct as far as practice management goes. The one that I work on the most is the employee handbook. And that's one I feel personally that they need to have before they actually come into the practice. Mm. So many times I will have them hold to this conventional advice of not changing anything. They're afraid to change anything. But that manual that you're using is now yours. You're operating off of whatever rules were in there. And you don't know where that came from. It could be 30 years old. It could have been something they got from an office manager group on Facebook. Ask me how I know that. Yeah, <laughs> it could be sure. just flat out terrible. They could have gotten it from a reputable company and then gone and made a lot of changes that aren't legal. And if you're going to try to operate off of the seller's manual, you're basically, you know, throwing darts at a wall and hope it's right. <laughs> hope you hope that, you land. That's assuming the seller even has a manual, right? But that's let me back up. The seller has a manual. <laughs> you're saying that there's three different because I kind of lumped in my head. HIPAA compliance, there's kind of, there's probably a binder somewhere that you could say hopefully. updated annually and hopefully. Okay. So I, I want to check for that. You said SOP or kind of an operations manual that describes yeah. how the office is run. I would say that's pretty rare. I don't actually hear about that very often. The best offices have it. Yes. But I will say, um, it, <laughs> I don't see a lot of those. <laughs> and then you're I, talking about a third document, the employee manual. Try to be lumped into the employee handbook where they have a lot of job descriptions and things yeah. that are added to the employee handbook that you know we, we've tried to take out of employee handbooks in the last decade. Okay, got it. So if the seller has an employee manual, um, you're recommending grab it and probably either replace it or update it or do something with it. Have it reviewed by a professional. Okay. Good, Don't good give it to the office manager and say, here, update this. Yeah. <laughs> but that's delegation care. I thought. Uh, don't, I thought don't take it home cool. and then decide to start making some changes and sure. adding a few things that sound good in your head. Yeah. If I were the office manager, I'd give myself four weeks of vacation. Okay. All right. Uh, so, I have that story, actually. And it was seven. 
Seven. Yeah, well, yeah, go for the gusto, right? And then raise while you're at it. Sure. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, all right, have it reviewed by a compliance professional. What about um, uh, contracts? Does every, do my new employees need some kind of signed job application, job contract or whatever? So I am not a huge fan of employment contracts. For one, I'm not an attorney, so I don't do contracts. Um, But for two, you're in most likely, unless you're in Montana, in an at-will state. And so unless it's an associate that's also in the practice, that one likely needs a contract and you want to make sure to check with your attorney, please be like an actual labor attorney that works with management side, not like the real estate attorney that you've worked with, not necessarily the same person who's done the contract um, for the transition, even somebody who's very familiar with associate contracts and make sure that that is completely kosher because I've seen that go wrong as well. Um, But for the employees, uh, an offer of employment saying that this is what your um, this is what your salary is going to be, your hourly rate is going to be, this is what benefits we're keeping if you have that. Uh, or at the very least, have job descriptions that everybody's on the same page. And and there again, that isn't necessarily a hundred percent something you have to have. But I would I would work on that within the first month or so. You know, not saying that we're changing anything. It's just this is what I want to I want to know what everybody's doing. So I'd love to see your job descriptions. Please, you know, do a do a job analysis, make a bulleted list, and write down what you think your job is, <laughs> what okay. your job is, um, just so I can kind of see what everybody does because you've never met these people and you've never worked a day in the practice for some some of these buyers, right? So that's interesting. You know what they're doing. I thought yeah, and I thought. Um... You kind of went a different direction than I was expecting. I was expecting, you know, I have some kind of, you know, job description already and I'm checking it. What you're, what I maybe heard you saying was it's probably unlikely that the employees in the office have any kind of job description written out. And, and so. How old is it? And are they really doing what's on it? A lot of these job descriptions that I see are just templates somebody pulled off Google. Sure. Sure. And they aren't really custom to the practice. Right. Okay. So you recommend actually having the staff write out or bullet point. These are the things that I do. We, we do something in HR called a job analysis, and we do this for many reasons. Um, when we're updating job descriptions, when we're looking to hire for a position, you know, we want to know what that position is, but it's something that helps the staff tell you basically what they're doing. Uh, and that may be subject to change over time, but in the very beginning, at least, I think it would be helpful for the buyer, especially if this is a first-time buyer, to really know what the team is doing. Would you have the staff do that before you showed up as their official boss? Or I, I'm guessing this no. would be something I would do in the first few yeah. months. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would have them do it after in the first couple of months. Okay. Um, maybe just even in the first 30 days or so. Okay. I My gut says maybe not week one, right? I probably want to no, like, learn probably not week one. And, you know, but maybe as part of a team meeting, a you know, a, a pulse check week three or four. Perhaps. Okay. Perfect. Can I delegate that? Can I put somebody else in charge of collecting that, or is that? Is yeah, that sure, my job? absolutely. If you have if you have a big enough team to put somebody in charge, and it may not be every single team member. If you've bought a large enough practice and there's four or five dental assistants, you probably don't need the same list from every single one of them. Yeah, you guys go go get together at lunch or something yeah. and decide, you know. Well, or part of a team meeting, part of a strategy session. I want you all to get together and, and come up with what your job description is so that I am on the same page as you are and, and we all kind of know what everybody's doing here. Um, okay. I want to be able all to right. support you in what you're doing. And so I need to know what that is so that I know how to best support you. Yep. What do you see as the most common mistakes new practice owners make in with regards to the staff? Like what, what are they doing that messes things up? Uh, lately, what they're doing is they're getting very afraid of these benefits and of the salary, and they're wanting to change some things Ooh, pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, and and it surprises me because wasn't that something that was covered in the transition paperwork? 
Um, but they, you know, especially if they're a first time practice owner, they see those big numbers, they see those payroll numbers and they get very, very scared. And so a lot of decisions I feel in dentistry as a, as a practice leader are made based in fear. And, and what they do is they start chopping benefits. They start you know, reconfiguring what the, the wages are. Well, maybe we'll lower this. Well, you're already under market value. Why are you lowering this? Oh, I'm going to put in a bonus structure. Okay. What's that going to look like? And they start scaring the team. And it's, it's like, you know, if, if they manage to stay with you for the first month or two, um, then you probably want to try to keep them right <laughs> as best possible. And I'm pretty sure that cutting their pay and cutting their benefits is not the best way to do that. I agree. In most cases. Are there any benefits you could get away with cutting? I think especially um, on some of the premium benefits like health insurance, which should not, in my opinion, be a premium benefit, but it, it is in dentistry, you know, yeah. and yeah. other other industries and in other parts of the country. Um, <laughs> that's kind of a given that there's health insurance, but uh, in dentistry, that seems to be one of those things that they, uh, it's very expensive. I get it. It is, um, but they don't see it as part of the initial total compensation package. They see it as a pre- premium benefit. There are different policies out there and it may be something worth looking at probably before you sign the paperwork, <laughs> what is the, uh, what does the health insurance look like? How much does that really cost? Uh, and is there something else that you can work? Cause especially if you're coming in with a new entity, it's, it's a new contract between you and the health insurance company, right? So you want to make sure that that's one that you feel like you can afford long-term. And so that I think, as long as you're still keeping some type of health insurance, you might be able to make some adjustments too, um, because it shouldn't overall change a lot of the expense on the employee side. Okay. That's good. I, lo- I love the subtlety there. I, I've always been a little more blunt with people. I've said, you can't change pay rate, you can't change bonus structure, and you can't drop health insurance. And and I have said, and this is from my finance background, you can get away with pushing pause on a 401k or like some mm-hmm. other pension plan, as long as you're very clear that it's coming back and coming back soon. And I can maybe talk about the reasons why, and that's as nerdy accountant land. But um, <laughs> it, it, so first of all, do you agree with the, me on the pension thing? Oh, I agree. Um, Especially because, again, if it's a new entity, if they've not technically been with you long enough, you want to make sure that you're following whatever the plan says. And I know there can be some exceptions to that um, to get people, you know, to continue if if they've been with the practice for a long time. But um, I agree with that. And I also agree, you know, you don't get rid of the health insurance. You just might be able to to adjust the plan to make it a little bit more palatable for you. Maybe tweak it. Right. Yeah. And and my argument to the buyer who's nervous about health insurance is, hey, we ran the numbers. Health insurance were included in that you felt like you could live on the money you could make from this practice with health insurance mm-hmm. being included. Yes, maybe someday in the future you can change that, but um, you know, tweaking that right now is a guaranteed way to lose some people and probably your best people. I think a lot of practice owners, new practice owners will come in and realize that maybe the team is not as productive as they thought they were. Um, or as to whatever their standard is, that's usually what I hear is when they start talking about cutting benefits. Well, you know, I, I looked at the numbers before and they were doing this before, but we have a lot of work to do and they're not doing as much as I thought they would. And they're not, you know, they're hygienists who are not doing, uh, not, not offering fluoride or they're not yep. um, upselling anything no, for me. They're not doing anything out. I need them to do all these other things to be able to afford the rest of this. Okay. And, and we can work on that. Mm. But in the meantime, I don't think cutting their benefits is going to motivate them to do it. <laughs> motivate them to find a new job. And yeah. Okay. So that's uh, maybe the the last place I want to go with this initial discussion just around a transition is, is there ever a time to get rid of someone? Right. It's very common for me to hear a buyer say, Brian, you know, I've, I have met the staff maybe beforehand or right after and, you know, employees A, B, C, and D are amazing. But Brian, I got to tell you about employee E. Oh my gosh. You know, 
he is a real piece of work and he does this and he does that. And you can't believe what he said to me. And in front of the staff, he did it. Right. And there's always a story. Is it ever appropriate to get rid of somebody like right when you buy a practice? Is there, I mean, let's, let's set aside like obvious fraud or, you know, sexual assault or some crazy story, but you know, like just setting aside like craziness, does it ever really make sense to take out somebody that you feel is obviously just maybe toxic? I have to give you the classic HR answer of it depends. It depends. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Favorite answer of HR people and attorneys. What do do you (laughs) think it depends on in this case? Like what would be some of the things that run through your mind as an expert? I think it depends on on what is really going on. I have seen practice owners take over and there may not be actual fraud or embezzlement going on, but there was a, a case I worked on a couple of years ago where the office manager was not allowing the new owner into the QuickBooks, wasn't allowing him to see his own finances. She had managed this for 20 years and she you know, didn't see any reason he should be involved in this. And I'm like, it's his money. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> so cases like that, you know, that might be a little different. Sure. I think that a lot of it needs to happen after a conversation though. Sometimes the people that you feel like you need to get rid of, it's really a matter of opinion. It's a matter of perspective. Um, And sometimes that just comes from being very green as a leader. Uh, Whenever you're coming into a practice and, and uh, and I have heard this before, (laughs) I'm the boss. Shouldn't they listen to me? This person's not (laughs) listening to me. I'm like, see, the problem may not be them so much. Maybe you need to um, have a conversation uh, with yourself first about, you know, really what, what is the true problem here? So I always want to make sure that if you're letting somebody go, that they are really the problem um, and that it's not just a difference of opinion or it's not just some kind of a, a conflict between different management styles or an alignment of philosophy or something along those lines that might be worked through in a couple of conversations. Um, but I, I do think there are some times where depending on the direction you want the practice to go, if there's an, an office manager or somebody who's been very highly paid and, and isn't really doing as much, maybe you don't want to hire them straight off the bat. That's that's your prerogative. It may be worth considering if that's not what you are doing with your practice. Um, you know, this person, uh, this practice may have been overstaffed for some reason or another. Um, yeah. So I think you really just have to, if you're going to make that decision, make it an informed decision and really investigate and look at, at why you wouldn't necessarily want to continue employing this person. I will say though, the longer you wait, the worse it gets. Mm-hmm. Uh I think there's a huge myth that's still out there about unemployment benefits and that if you, for some reason, terminate somebody within the first 90 days, you don't have to pay unemployment. (laughs) And that's not entirely correct. Um, So if you are going to terminate somebody, I would do it sooner than later and I would do it correctly. I would do it as a for cause, if possible, termination, not just a, ah, they're not, you know, performing as well as they could be, or just, ah, I just don't really like them. They're not a good fit. I would really try to find a reason that that is a for cause termination if you're wanting to try to avoid that unemployment. What what's uh what what's the difference between for cause and just poor performance? Uh, I mean, poor performance is a cause, but a for cause generally, if you're looking at unemployment side of it, is going to be actual misconduct, an actual policy violation, something that they're doing that you know is is truly with good reasonable judgment wrong. Uh, um, showing up for work late. Um, I don't know, not. Yes. Attendance issues, showing up for work late, that's a four-cause termination. Um, You know, theft, obviously, is a four-cause termination. Any kind of assault, any kind of anything like that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, those are all four-cause. But, or any actual policy violation that's in your employee handbook, which (laughs) you have to have one of those to be able to use it, funny enough. Yeah, yeah, okay. (laughs) 